Hello, everyone, and welcome to the thrilling adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 90, and my name is Michael Bradley. This episode, we'll be looking at Superman number 8, with four brand new Superman stories. And adding to the awesome that this episode is, I have got with me a special guest. So it is my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Mr. Michael Bailey. Hey, Mike. I'm going to guess that almost everyone listening to this has heard a Michael Bailey podcast at some point, as he is the man of a thousand podcasts, including (laughs) Crisis to Crisis and Views from the Long Box and the recently resurrected Bailey's Batman podcast and many, many more. Uh, How you find the time to do it all, I I don't know. Uh, It's called Not Sleeping. And uh, I don't watch a lot of TV. <laughs> I really don't. It was, that was made apparent. But no, thank you so much for having me on for Superman number eight. This was my first issue of Superman, and we get to see the Legion of Superheroes. And we get to see Superman with his, with his shirt off in front of Lana Lang. I mean, that's, that's the issue we're covering, right? Because you know, that's what the, I prepped for, right? You know this is the first Superman number eight. <laughs> and now there's three. <laughs> yes. And I feel very old because of that. <laughs> Especially since uh, I was 11 in 87, so I don't know uh, yeah. how old you were at that point. So I turned I turned 10 in March of 87. Okay, so you're a year younger than me. Yes. Yeah, so, so we both feel old. Very good. <laughs> um, I know you've shared it on From Crisis to Crisis and, and other shows, but whenever I have folks on, I like to ask them. So what is your Superman history? Um, Superman's been with me as long as I can remember. Uh, I was more of a Batman fan as a kid, as a little kid, uh, especially because of the TV show. But, you know, there was the Super Friends, and, you know, I was two years old in 1978 when the Christopher Reeve movies came out. And I always loved those movies. Uh, I think I saw the third one in the theater. Either I that or I saw the trailer for the third one in the theater, which is essentially like seeing the third one in the trailer <laughs> theater because that trailer gives away the entire film. Oh, yeah. But um, it wasn't until 1987, as we were kind of joking about a couple minutes ago, uh, when my, my sisters and I all had varying degrees of jacked up grills, so we required orthodonture. And Dr. Ty in, in Allentown, his waiting room was covered in comic books especially in the kids area but even when you went back there were stacks of comic books uh, to keep you distracted and the what cool dentist oh yeah and they were all mostly dc books um and he he had like these superman books around and i was like kind of leafing through them but not really getting in them too much but it was when i was at the grocery store with my dad and I saw that cover to Superman number eight, which is Superman hoisting a couple members of the Legion of Superheroes, who I didn't know were the Legion of Superheroes at the time, um, up in the air. I'm like, I remember seeing that cover at the doctor's office. And I went over and I opened the page and there was Clark Kent with his shirt off and a really hairy chest <laughs> ripping a tree out of the ground in front of Lana Lang. And three pages later, Ma and Pa Kent show up. So my entire knowledge of the Superman comics was Superman from the 30s to the 70s, which I took out of the school library again and again when I was uh, in elementary school. 
So it was really weird seeing, well, one, Superman with a hairy chest, and two, seeing him using his powers in front of Lana Lang, who I just had understood was a lot like Lois and was always trying to figure out and prove that Clark was Superman. And I bought that and the Action Comics issue that went with it that day. And from then on, except for a nine-month period about a year ago, I've been collecting the Superman books. And I've gone back and bought... I have, like, almost all the Bronze Age now. Wow. Um, Dipping my toe into the Silver Age, only if they're really, really, really cheap, uh, because those books are getting expensive. And thanks to the Chronicles and archives and all that, you know, I'm I'm getting to read the the Golden Age adventures. I just, he's my favorite character of all times. But, I, I, you know, my Golden Age of Superman... Uh, was a lot like yours. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing was in the '90s mm-hmm. with uh, you know the post-death stuff. Even though I've been reading before that, uh, which we're getting to on from crisis to crisis now. And I realized that even though we're finishing up with the death coverage and the return, we've still got so much awesome stuff to talk about. Yes, so. yes. That that period right after the death is one of my favorite periods of the character. Um, one thing I've never really heard you say, and I know there's a lot of Golden Age stories in that Superman from the 30s to the 70s, but when did you, aside from that, when did you first read a lot of the Golden Age material? Because it's quite a different depiction of the character. Oh, yes. The, the post-crisis stuff. Um, back around 98, I was in, the, there was this uh, place called the Book Nook, right near where the apartment buildings I was living in, and they sold used CDs, used movies, used books, but they also had a really healthy comic book section. And they had the Superman Archives Volume 1 for 10 bucks. Wow. Uh, and I'm like, you know, I can't pass that up. And I read those, and it was really... One, it was weird because that's just when the Supermen of America were coming uh, up in the comics wow. during the whole Dominus storyline. Mm-hmm. So, so now I can date that. Very good. And there was an ad for the Superman of America in that archives. But more than that, to read a Superman that, you know, I understood that he wasn't as powerful, but I just didn't understand how different he was psychologically and how, I don't want to call him a socialist, but he was very much an FDR Democrat of the, uh, of the uh, Great Depression. And to see those books was just kind of a revelation. And then when the the Chronicles started coming out and you read them all at once and you you see the frenetic energy of Siegel and Schuster's early works and seeing how the characters started out uh, very much um, the social crusader and like 15 years later, he is the fighter for the status quo. It's, I mean, still fighting for the common man, but just on a larger scale. Right. You, know, you know, if a meteor hits the earth, we're all going to die. So that is still fighting for the weak and the oppressed. So, yeah. yeah. But uh, now I love the Golden Age stories, uh, especially when you get a little further down the road and the art gets a little better. Because there's nothing against Joe Schuster as an artist. Those first stories are really rough. Yes, they are. Um, and I'm not trying to be hard on him because I can't because he gave me, you know, he, he was the co-creator of a character I love. But when you get into to, to Paul Cassidy and like the Wayne Boring artwork in this issue, it's just like, oh, wow, this is really good. Yeah. Um, well, right now I've been going through a lot of Jack Burnley because he did a stint on action. 
And the cover, not to spoil ahead, but the cover of the issue we're going to talk about today is by Fred Ray, which is another artist coming in. And, and by the time we get to you know mid-1941 is when a lot of those other artists start coming in. So we are really nearing that period when... I mean, they've, they've things have really taken off lately, mm-hmm. especially since the radio show started. But it just it just keeps climbing and climbing all the way through the war, and it's it's amazing and, how how that character's popularity just built and built and built. And I have to mention the radio show because around that very same time period in the late '90s, they started releasing them on CD uh, and tape. And I remember picking up that first box set and really hearing the radio show for the first time. Mm-hmm. And falling in love with it. Uh, I, I honestly think I enjoy it a little more than the comics of this period sometimes. The radio uh, show is just it's incredibly fun. Uh, maybe you'll have to come on sometime for a radio episode. Because oh, definitely. Cause, those are just, yeah. The silly stories at times. But oh, very much so. They're, but, they're, they're greatly acted and the sound effects are amazing and just really good stuff. But Collier's just fantastic. Yeah. I mean, just... I, I, years ago, I, we had left the game show network on when we went to bed, and I woke up hearing Superman's voice. <laughs> and I like opened my eyes, and I realized it's from To Tell the Truth, which was a show he hosted in the yeah. 50s. And I'm like, oh, okay, it's not Superman. I can go back to bed now. <laughs> uh, what would you say is your favorite Superman story of all time? Of all? Oh, oh wow. Um, oh, man. Why'd you put me on the spot? Like, um, I, I do that to all my guests. So, I'm trying to think because I was thinking uh, it's, it's odd that you say this because I was thinking of it just the other day, and I should have expected this. Um, are we talking like an extended story or just a one single issue, and that that pretty much defines the character for me? Um, well, I was kind of thinking just one issue, but if you've got an extended story, that's fine too. Well, actually, no, I, I can say this. My, my favorite Superman story ever, um, which is a bit of a cheat, but is, it's Action Comics number 500. Okay. I, I, lo- I love that telling of the origin because not only do we get a pretty extended and healthy retelling of the Bronze and Silver Age origin, it really delves into how his past affected him as an adult because there are certain points where he just can't talk anymore. Because he's just so overcome with emotion uh, over everything that happened. And, you know, it's got this little fun little subplot, which is actually the main plot. But to me, I consider it a subplot with Luther in disguise. And the the swan artwork was just dead on. I just, if... If I can point to any one issue of Superman that I love more than others, it's and this is weird coming from a post-crisis guy. It is uh, it, it is uh, Action Five Hundred. If you're talking an extended storyline, it's always going to be Exile, hmm. because Exile is what taught me to love an extended storyline. Yeah, uh, I, I got to admit, at that being twelve, thirteen years old, I didn't think he was coming back. Hmm. He left, and I was heartbroken. I was just like, oh, no, everything's different now. And I look back on that and kind of chuckle. But at the time, it was serious business. Yeah. Uh, and that's really what made me fall in love with the character and with his title as well. So, And you didn't know it at the time, but so much stuff later in the post-crisis really sprung from that storyline. Oh, it's what... 
<clears throat> it's what I was telling, you know, Jeffrey and I talk about the, would talk about that all the time leading up to the death. Without Exile, you don't have a death of Superman. Right. You really don't. And you don't have a panic in the sky. And you don't have Lois and Clark becoming engaged because it was because he was gone that she realized she had true feelings for him. And Byrne wasn't writing her anymore, so she wasn't a shrew. So she... <laughs> So she can soften up a little bit, but but you know, story wise, I'm not you know, real world, it's different. But story wise, you know, everything kind of spawns from that, which is why I get upset when people um, denounce him killing the Kryptonian villains because I see their point. You know, Superman shouldn't kill, but it's not like he killed them and they swept it under the rug and nothing came of it. It started this exactly. whole storyline where he had to deal with it. In a really r- real and emotional way, so exactly, and that's why I will defend that storyline uh, of him killing the, the Phantom Zone criminals. Uh, you know, I've talked about here on the show time and time again that Superman shouldn't kill, and I I am critical of it when it happens in these Golden Age stories. But post Crisis, I will defend that instance because they dealt with it and it had ramifications for the character that made it mean something. You know, like, like you said, it just wasn't swept under the rug. I forgot about. <laughs> and to be fair, they needed to die. Well, um, <laughs> they they had obliterated six million six billion people. I yeah. mean, that's... there's no coming back from that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break and play a promo, probably for one of uh, Mr. Bailey's shows, and then we'll come back and t- start a big, start our discussion of Superman number eight. The funeral is over. Jonathan Kent is on the mend. So, uh, how's Clark's father? Oh, much, much better. Lois has returned home. Lois, over here! Harry, wife? Since when did you start meeting your staff at the airport? How'd you know I was returning on that flight? A good editor checks out his hunters, Lois. I got a hot story of once who straight away. I'm parked over here. But just as Metropolis has learned to live without the Man of Steel... I know, there was only one Superman, but Metropolis just hit the jackpot. Because we got four Supermen now, and nobody knows which of them, if any, is the real McCoy. Four beings of incredible power and intellect have laid claim to the Man of Steel's name. The last son of Krypton. I live. The Man of Steel. Man of Steel coming through. Nobody moves. This is a bust. The Cyborg. Yes, I'm Superman. I'm back. The Boy of Steel. Put me down. Listen, pal, don't ever call me Superboy. Capiche? The reign of the Superman is upon us, and so from crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast begins its epic coverage of this last act in the epic death and return of Superman saga. Every week, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, along with the best and the brightest in the podcasting community, will cover this event in all of its forms, from the comics 
to the novelizations, to the audio drama, and beyond. Superman is back, but is any of them the real Man of Steel? Find out on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, located at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Okay, so we are back, and we're going to start our look at Superman number 8, which had a cover date of January-February 1941, and was released around November 10th of 1940. It was 10 cents, or 15 cents in Canada, and had 64 pages. The cover, like I said a minute ago, was by Fred Ray, and it's the first of his work that we've talked about on the show, and it shows Superman swooping down into... Uh, possibly the yard of either an oil refinery or a construction lot. It's kind of hard to tell. And there's a huge fire and a, a guy about to be shot with a Tommy gun by another guy. And then there's the, the, the world's greatest adventure ship character blurb that was added, I think, last issue. Uh, what do you think about this cover? I, I, I like that it kind of ties into one of the stories inside, and I like the fact that Superman looks disinterested in both the fire and the guy getting shot at. He looks like he's looking at something completely different off screen. But having said that, this is a great figure of Superman swooping in. The S looks good. The cape looks good. Um, This is, you know, we, we, you know, it's been a couple of issues of course, but this is the classic Superman costume. Yes. Uh, You know, and it's just, just a one a lot of people put down the golden age and sometimes i really can't blame them especially if you've read golden age marvel it's kind of hard to go through um but so you know you look at this type of artwork and you realize where everything came from and just how talented these men were to crank out i mean think about it there's this is 64 pages there's four stories Mm -hmm. and they did that this was a quarterly book at the time right bi-monthly but bi-monthly and then in action right. you had another superman strip and you had the newspaper strip they were cranking this stuff out the fact that any of it looks good yeah. is kind of a minor miracle so and they're about to add world's finest yes so yeah it's it's amazing the quality of work they put out given how much they were cranking out at the time uh, but like you i like this cover it's kind of hard to tell exactly what's going on i mean there's a gasoline tanker and stacks of lumber that are on fire and this guy with a a gun holster getting shot at it, i don't know it's it's kind of weird but like you said the the superman figure is very awesome and it's just a very dynamic shot and i i like it for that um but like i said this issue has four new stories and our first was untitled at publication but later called the giants of professor z it was written of course by jerry siegel with Pencils by Paul Cassidy and inked by either Paul Cassidy or Wayne Boring, and the entire issue was edited by Whitney Ellsworth. When civilization is threatened by invading giants, mere police forces are inadequate to meet the menace. A champion steps forward to battle in mankind's behalf, a relentless foe of all criminal intrigue, the mighty, the sensational 
Superman. We open at a retreat hidden deep within a volcano, where a Professor Z and a Dr. Cardos celebrate Z's breakthrough in successfully increasing the size of living organisms, and Z resolves to begin the next phase in attempting the procedure on a human. Months later, a huge form lumbers across the countryside. It smashes the U.S. Mint, stealing handfuls of money, fends off an attack from the military, and then lumbers off. Elsewhere, other giants wreak havoc by smashing a train, crushing a forest, and causing all sorts of other damage. Meanwhile, at the Daily Planet, Editor White fills in Clark Kent and Lois Lane about the lumbering giants and assigns them to cover the story. Slipping into a nearby storeroom, Clark changes to Superman and leaps off, hoping he's finally about to meet a real challenge. At the same time, Lois hears a radio news flash of another attack from the giants. Thinking Clark has turned coward and gone to hide, Lois heads to the airport and hires a plane herself to head out west. As Superman arrives out west himself, his telescopic vision sees giants building homes within the volcano, and the roads are packed with cars as a terrified populace tries to get out of Dodge. Meanwhile, at the home of the governor, two giant hands crash through the ceiling, carrying off the governor and his daughter as captives. Superman overhears a news report about the governor's abduction and is about to go into action when he sees a giant cat lunge from the woods, attack some passing motorists. Proving that Superman still hates animals, even the giant mutant kind, the Man of Steel grabs the cat, spins and launches it into the air, sending it miles away and saving the couple. Rescue complete, Superman races to the top of a nearby mountain, surveying the giant's activities within the volcano. He leaps down into the crack of a glacier, ready to tangle with the monsters, when a voice booms from a speaker, warning Superman to stay back. Not needing a speaker to magnify his own voice, Superman responds, refusing to give in. One of the giants tries to grab Superman, but the Man of Steel eludes its grasp, doing a backflip and grabbing hold of the giant's foot. As the giant jumps in pain, Superman hangs on like a rodeo cowboy. The monster finally goes down, but four more giants run to the scene as the voice orders them to attack. Spinning, Superman tears at the side of the glacier, sending a portion of it crashing down on top of the advancing giants. Just then, Lois Lane's plane arrives on scene, which distracts Superman and allows him to be grabbed by one of the giant's arms and pulled under the ice. As Z celebrates that the mighty Superman is no more, beneath the ice, the Man of Steel struggles to break free of the ice that's forming around him. With his X-ray vision, he watches in horror as Lois Lane's plane is grabbed by one of the giants. As the giant tosses the plane aside, probably killing the pilot, Z orders the giant to bring Lois to him. Straining his muscles to their maximum, Superman is able to break free of his icy prison and leap into the sky. Back in Z's laboratory, the Mad Professor locks Lois in her room with the governor's daughter, threatening to turn them both into giants if the governor interferes. Finally having had enough, Superman attempts to leap into the laboratory, but is thrown for a loop when he merely crashes into the building's transparent walls. Dazed, he's grabbed by one of the giants and brought before Z and Cardos, who tells Superman that if he joins forces with them, the girls will be released unharmed. When Superman refuses, the the professor activates a ray, and Superman watches as Lois and the governor's daughter appear to grow within their transparent prison. Leaping into the air, Superman grabs an inexplicably nearby boulder and tosses it into the heart of the smoldering volcano, causing it to explode. 
Melted by the lava, the glacier rushes towards the laboratory in a raging flood. Superman races forward, hoping to outrun the water and save Lois and the others. As the giants flee in panic, Z and Cardos attempt to rein them in, but are stepped on and killed for their trouble. Superman grabs the governor and breaks open the girls' prison to free them and is shocked to find out that they are normal-sized. Grabbing all three, Superman leaps into the air mere moments before the onslaught of floodwaters destroy the area and kill the remaining giants. Superman then explains that the girls were never actually enlarged. It was all merely an illusion created with a magnifying glass. And soon, Clark Kent returns to the Daily Planet congratulating Lois Lane on her scoop. And Lois replies that while she can attribute it to her mad skills as a reporter, most of the credit goes to Superman. (laughs) The end. That's a uh, so apparently ninety nine percent of it was Superman and the one percent was her being a good reporter. That's yes. Gosh, she's selling herself short there. Uh, so what do you have on this one? Oh, um, <clears throat> apparently growing people and such was uh, was common around this time because John Wilson and I just talked about All Star Comics number three uh-huh. and the Sandman story in there had the same basic plot with this, except yeah, yeah. the bad guy in this one is less amusing looking. Because uh, the guy in that Sandman story is goofy, uh, but but seriously, they, they, there's giants walking around, and apparently the process is unstable because they uh, crumble into a sack of skin and bones. Because the bones shrink, but the skin doesn't. It's really weird. Hmm. Um, also, Professor Z as a name would show up again. He was kind of the jerky professor that Per Degaton worked for. Uh, that he would always kill right at the beginning of every Degaton adventure. So uh, I was I was amused to see that name pop was up. Was it meant to be the same character? I don't think it was okay. because they look completely different. Oh, okay. And that Z was uh, experimenting in time travel. Oh, okay. uh, and this guy um, likes to grow people. So it's, it's, it's two different uh, sciences, yes. I'm assuming. Um, Page two, that guy in the second panel looks like he is waving goodbye to his family, not seeing a giant. Uh, Just doesn't sell it for me. Uh, Page three, and really throughout the story, the giant's outfits are ridiculous. Yes. Uh, They're just, I mean, they're basically wearing like cargo shorts and like a and like a golf shirt and uh some some uh some goofy boots or something so and why isn't clark wearing his glasses in that first panel or that bottom panel yeah i was just like well that's kind of okay i'll just go with it you just forgot to draw it that's fine um page four apparently the only thing this pilot needed to over his overcome his fear of giants is money uh and superman looks really good in that final panel um, page five, I really liked the, this guy in the ugly pants, uh, in the middle of the, of the, in the middle panels. It's just, it's just great. Um, page six, as silly as Superman fighting a giant cat is, uh, this is a really dynamic action scene. Yeah. Yeah. I was really surprised because I was prepared to kind of like chuckle at it. And then I'm looking at it and I'm like, wow, the art's really good here. They're really selling him fighting a giant cat. Not as awesome as him fighting robots, but I think we can all agree that there is never anything wrong with Superman fighting robots. Um, Page seven, that's Superman always forgetting the one thing he needs, in this case, a camera, because to take (laughs) pictures of the pretty 
outdoors. Okay. And the idea of Superman shouting back and forth with somebody <laughs> just makes me giggle. Um, page eight, I love the panel at the bottom with all of the giants running towards Superman, but apparently Professor Z subscribes to the Professor Raymond's stance school of, um, of planning where he just goes, get him. <laughs> I just wanted to cut back and have his assistant go, that was your plan. Get him. Um, <laughs> page 10. Now that's a scientist I can get behind. If you find a girl, don't let her go. Uh, page 11, the dynamic shots of Superman don't let up throughout this entire story. And we get more of that on this page. And page 13, this is going to sound critical, but it's really not. It's like a lot of Golden Age stories. The ending just kind of happens. The scientists are killed by their own creations, though I like the M. Night Shyamalan twist of the Funhouse mirrors. And the fact, I think Superman figured it out earlier in the story. Because when he sees them, he's got this expression on his face like, you know, I have x-ray vision, right? <laughs> okay, just checking. But, but earlier uh, on that page, he, he acts surprised. Yeah, that's why I'm confused. It's just, why are you surprised? But that's me reading into yeah. the story more than was in the story. But, um, but yeah, all like Golden Age stories, it's like the, the creators, the, especially the writer, gets to the end of the story. It's like, oh, we got to wrap this up now. Mm-hmm. And it it always makes for kind of a clunky ending. And like I said, Lois just has a sad bit of low self-esteem here. Just like, yep, 99% Superman. Though I do like the fact that she is bored with flying with Superman at this point. Because when he's carrying her and the governor's daughter, she's like, oh, you get used to it. At which point Superman drops her. He catches her, but, you know. Just gotta keep Lois on her toes. But no, I mean, as goofy as this story was, it was enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, too often, when a when a golden age story is goofy, it's it's it really gets just silly, and you don't, and the enjoyment just goes away. But um, as a warm up, I, I kind of like it. It was whimsical. You know, you had these ugly. <laughs> just it's like all the giants just came from gym class, and. Uh, and we're, I guess, do you lose your hair when you become a giant too? So I, none of these things are explained. But no, I, I liked it quite a bit. As for my notes, the the opening splash, I thought this was an okay splash and it tied into the story, which I give it points for. But there was just a lot of blank space here on the side and I think they could have better utilized the, the panel. But mm-hmm. it gets points for, for tying into the story. Um, The opening caption of the story itself takes us to, quote, a hidden retreat within a semi-extinct volcano somewhere in the mountains of a far western state, which goes a really, really long way to be specific while still being incredibly vague. (laughs) You're absolutely right. (laughs) But but I do love the opening of the story. The the first three pages, which is almost a quarter of a 13-page story, is just the introduction of Z and Cardos, and then we get almost two full pages of the giants running amok and tearing things up. Uh, we don't see any of the main cast until the very last panel on page three, and then Superman doesn't show up until page four. Um, I, I don't get a chance to do it near enough these days with my work and podcasting and everything, but I really love old uh, black and white, like, 50s sci-fi horror movies. And this one, in a lot of ways, reminded me of the opening of some of those, or, or to even bring it back to Superman some of the Fleischer cartoons because mm-hmm. we just get like several minutes of 
the problem before they actually go to the hero of the story, which I really, really liked. And, and you've got the giants crushing buildings and, and scaring the military. Just a great opening. And if you notice, you don't actually get a good look at the giants until the bottom of page two. And our, and our first good look at them comes over on page three. So I kind of like that building of suspense. Yeah, there's a great atmosphere to it mm-hmm. that, you, that I don't think you would normally think of in a story from this time period. Yeah. Uh, page three, I had a note about Clark's glasses. And... I also want to note that the editor is just called White here. Uh, Perry was first introduced on the radio show, which I'm sure you know, and then made his first comic book appearance in Superman number 7, but was only referred to as White. And he hasn't been in the last couple issues of action, so to date he's only been called White, not Perry White, in a Siegel-written story, which I find kind of interesting. Page 4, Superman changes in a storeroom. That's not quite become a thing yet, but it's happened a couple times, so it's getting there. Uh, something else, though, Lois comments wondering where Clark has gone, and she says, he's probably taken fright and hidden himself somewhere. That would be typical of him. And this is one of the first times I think that that's happened, um, with, with Lois thinking Clark has run off. She's implied that he's a big wimp before, and Clark's certainly acted the part, but for her to actually think he's run off and hid somewhere which has kind of become a, a cliché staple of the, the Superman mythology. I, I think that's a first. Um, I think you're right. When, now that I'm thinking about it, that's weird. Uh, when Superman jumps out the window, he says, looks like I'm going to get some real opposition for a change. And I've wondered before if Jerry Siegel didn't want Superman to face bigger threats like this more often, but possibly faced opposition from editorial who I'm sure were very skittish about big changes in the concept since it was selling so well. I mean, I have no evidence either way, but I know that Donenfeld and Leibowitz and Ellsworth were leaning pretty hard on Siegel around this time, but I don't know how strict they were about plots or or just wanting, you know, entertaining stories. Uh, Page five... Okay, this was a weird moment, almost a non-sequitur, when the giants are building houses inside a volcano. (laughs) And I know Z said at the beginning that they wanted to launch a new civilization, but what's the point in that? Just because they can? I guess I can understand that, but it's odd. If their intentions aren't evil, why why were the giants looting the mint and trashing stuff earlier? It's just very weird. Uh, page six, a very nicely illustrated page, like you said, of of uh, Superman fighting the cat. And I love this kind of center panel where he's racing through the panel border. Mm-hmm. You don't uh, you don't see that very often in Superman stories from this panel or this period. Um, jumping ahead to pages eight and nine, it's interesting in these old issues of Superman where, when he actually does have to fight something like this. You know, in comics from the last sixty years, he's flying and punching and using heat vision and super breath or whatever, but this Superman doesn't have those advantages. He's still got to take this athletic and kind of hands-on rough-and-tumble approach, which is really fun in that it's different from most other Superman comics that I read. Uh, yeah, and, and I love his excitement. I can hardly wait to tangle with those babies. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, just yeah, I, I, this Superman was such a man of action that 
he was probably itching to take on something that might be greater than himself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can only punch so many gangsters in the face before you <laughs> want to do something else. Don't tell George Reeves that. He's going to get out of it. Um, page 11, this bit here with Superman bouncing off the transparent walls. It's one of those just oddly random things that happens in a lot of Superman stories from this time that's never really explained. Uh, pages 12 and 13, I wish they would have done more with, or at least explained better, the thing with the magnifying glass and the illusion. Mm-hmm. And that Lois Lane and, what's her name? The governor's daughter. I don't think she was ever actually named, and I think about it. Anyway, that they weren't actually growing, but it's not really a, a deal breaker for me. The, like you said, the explanation just feels a little crammed in there at the end. Um, but overall, I really like this one too. It was It was a fun and enjoyable read and I feel like I got a good Golden Age Superman story out of this. I mean, all we had was Superman fighting giants and saving Lois, but sometimes that's all you need. You know, it's it's funny that you you compare this to like a a, a B science fiction film from the 50s. Now that you say that, when I look at the scene with the giant cat, I almost see like the miniatures. <laughs> and like, yeah. like like a full-size cat swatting aside like a model car. Yeah. <laughs> great um it was just really neat seeing superman take on a bit of a larger threat to this point most of his Mm -hmm. villains have been predominantly human you know racketeers and murderers and thugs um so him facing a larger than life villain made me happy and it made a heck of a lot more sense than the giants of doom valley which was a story from very early in the sunday strip oh 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 (laughs) are you familiar with that story Yes, I am. I'm not. It's not one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. I mean, at least here we got an explanation of where the giants came from. And yeah, I mean, I like, I love the the, the newspaper strips, but some of the, that one was not the uh, the epitome of that uh, of that series. What I'm finding with the newspaper strips is that the dailies are really good, but the Sundays are a lot weaker, and I don't know what the difference is. And I, the only explanation I've been able to offer is that. Siegel had trouble with the format. Probably. I mean, he he seemed to be really uh, ready and able to dive into the daily strip format, which is a completely different language mm-hmm. than comic books. Uh, you, you have to do so much more with less, and yet you can seem to do more in a, an extended strip. Uh, than you can in a comic book story. So it's kind of weird. Yeah, because he's not limited to 13 pages. Mm -hmm. He can go on for months and months if he wants to, which I'm sure really opened up a lot of doors for him. Um, And it also seemed like in this story, Siegel was able to put to use a lot of Superman's various abilities without you know shoehorning them in and making it feel like, okay, now Superman's going to use this power. Just about each time something was, was used, it would actually serve the story in a, a useful way, which I appreciated. Um, one final note is kind of going back to what Mike said earlier about the uh, Sandman story. I've seen it said that this borrows heavily from a 1934 Doc Savage story titled The Monsters. I've never read that one, but from what I could find online, the plots don't seem all too similar, aside from a scientist turning people into monsters. Um, but then detailed synopses for Doc Savage stories are sometimes hard to come by online. Uh, but what I could find, it seems like the Doc Savage story actually had more influence on the Hugo Strange story from Batman. Yeah, 1. 
I was just thinking that yeah. that uh, you know he was turning the men into monsters as well in in his first appearance. So yeah, but you know, even if Siegel did pick up more plot points than I think he did from that Doc Savage story, it wouldn't at all surprise me. <laughs> I mean, I think Doc Savage was a clear influence on Superman even more than Siegel would admit in later years, but. <laughs> Even more so than Siegel is legally able to well, admit, yes. yeah. like like the Gladiator, which he really couldn't talk about after a while. Right. Well, lawsuits will do that to you. So. <laughs> um, but if you want to read this story, it's been reprinted in Superman Archives Volume Two and Superman Chronicles Volume Five. Uh, I think this is the first. It is the first story we've covered from Superman Chronicles Volume Five. So you have to crack open a new volume. Uh, but right now we're going to take another break, and then we'll come back to talk about the second story from Superman number eight. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com Alright, and we are back, and I'm going to hand it off to Michael for the second story. Yes, which, uh, like uh, Mike said earlier, with the first story, this doesn't have an official title, but um, the Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics calls this the Sinister Sagdorf, which is not what I would call a dynamic title. Uh, it's written by Jerry Siegel, penciled by Wayne Boring, with inks by, oh man, Don Camasaro? That's how I've been pronouncing it. And that's how I'm going to do it too. When Clark Kent's uh, aide is summoned to combat traitorous fifth column activities, he has no... It, Imitation? Intimation. Intimation. Okay, wow. I screwed up. He has no intimation that it will lead to his being faced with a murder charge. Clark then has no alternative but to venture forth in his dual identity as the dynamic Superman in an attempt to clear his name. We begin with Clark looking down from the window of his midtown apartment and seeing someone looking back from the street. Thinking that the man is up to no good and probably making trouble in the neighborhood and not wanting his mom to get scared of moving with his uncle and auntie in Bel Air, Clark changes into Superman to see what's what. Just when he's about to just when he is about to leap out the window and go be all that is man, 
There is a knock at the door. Superman grabs a swanky robe, puts on his glasses, and opens the door. He is surprised to find Frank Martin on the other side and asks if Martin is still involved with the anti-espionage service. Martin can't tell him much, because it's anti-espionage, but reveals that the leader of a dangerous group of fifth columnists is sneaking into town by boat that very night. Since Clark has been so good at detective work in the past, Martin asks him to pass along any information he might uncover. After Frank leaves, Clark loses the robe and takes off out the window. He notices that the man from before following Martin, but then recognizes him somehow as Jeff Carlton, Frank's assistant. And the worst bit of foreshadowing I've seen in quite some time, Superman thinks that Jeff is probably there to protect Frank. (laughs) Flies to the dock and spots some sailors leaving a ship and following a scary-looking man. The man turns out to be Eric Rybell, who incites the men to follow his fifth columnisty ways and distribute some dangerous and possibly subversive literature. Superman has had enough of this and crashes into the room, much to the consternation of the would-be rebels. He makes quick work of them and is finally confronted by Rybell, who does the standard pulling of the gun. This time, though, Superman grabs the gun and fires it at Rybell, but uses his super speed to catch the bullet at the last moment. After a hail hearty, a hail and hearty knock it off, Superman leaves, changes back to Clark, and calls Frank Martin about the list of spies he got off of Rybell in the melee. Clark rushes over to Martin's office and is shocked to discover that Jeff Carlton has just shot Martin to death. To make matters worse, Jeff throws the gun at Clark, who catches the firearm just as the cops burst in. The cops arrest Clark, and things go from bad to really bad when they find the list of fifth columnists in his pocket. Clark resolves to escape to prove his innocence and does just that and evades the police with ease. Soon Superman heads back to where the spies have been meeting, spots Rybell, and follows him. Rybell boards a plane. I keep wanting to say rebel, but um, Rybell boards a plane, which Superman follows and discovers an army that is ready to strike at the armed forces from behind if they are forced to defend America's coasts. Superman spies on Rybell, who is reporting to a man named Sagdorf. Sagdorf doesn't believe the stories about Superman because nobody believes the stories about Superman in this era, and orders Rybell to head back to Metropolis and meet with Carlton, which seems like a really, rather, uh, re- uh, excuse me, uh, like a rather silly plan, but you know, whatevs. They leave the tent, giving Superman the chance to see what is in Sagdorf's files. A sentry spots him and tries to bayonet the Man of Steel, but this only incites Superman to take him down, the soldiers that rush in to help their comrade, and just good for, for good measure, Superman trashes the entire camp. After destroying the planes and trashing the electric and munition plants, Superman flies back to Metropolis to clear Clark Kent's name. He finds Carlton snooping through some files and pulls a gun on him. They travel to the Daily Planet where Clark convinces Jeff that he will shoot him if he doesn't confess to killing Martin. Jeff confesses, but Lois is sure that the confession won't hold up because it was made under duress. Clark is sure that he has enough evidence to prove his innocence, and sure enough, he is cleared of all charges. Lois wonders if Clark, what Clark would have done if Jeff hadn't confe- uh, confessed, and we leave with Clark telling her that that is something she'll have to puzzle over for the rest of her days. As Lois slowly inches away. (laughs) This is what I don't get about her saying that he's a wimp. He just pulled a gun on a guy. (laughs) Yeah. Do you care if I... No, go on first. (laughs) 
this was okay, just not my favorite. Um, there was a lot of gunplay from Clark, which I didn't really appreciate, and I think I would have preferred more time spent on Clark trying to get out from under the murder rap than five pages of Superman trashing stuff, which that stuff is fun and, and part and parcel with Superman in the Golden Age, but Clark being framed for murder is a really neat idea, and I, I just would have liked to see them explore that a little more. Uh, but to get into the page-by-page, page, now this is an opening splash panel. Mm-hmm. You've got Superman throwing cannons and getting fired on by soldiers with huge guns, and there's warplanes soaring through the sky. It's it's just really great. And the coloring, Superman's blue costume really pops against the red sky in the background. Um, I, I will say, though, that the setup to this story is a bit hinky. He, he sees a guy out on the street and thinks something's up. Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, maybe the guy had been there for a while, but they don't really say that. It sounds like Clark just looks out the window and sees the guy standing there. Oh, he must be up to trouble. And it it is kind of weird. Yeah. Page two, I liked the idea of this guy coming to Clark, knowing that he's been good at ferreting out leads in the past and seeking help. People often talk about how differently Superman is portrayed through the years, but Clark in the Golden Age at least in this early golden age that I've done on the show, was also portrayed quite a bit different because he actually seems like a capable reporter to everyone but Lois. And even more so on the radio, where I think a really good case could be made that Clark is the star of the show more than Superman himself. Um, And that's one thing I really like about this era over, say, the Silver Age. Because much like the post-crisis, we get this kind of more well-rounded depiction of Clark. Now, I'll agree with that completely. Uh, I much prefer the Clark of especially the radio show Mm -hmm. uh, than the Clark of the comics in the 50s, who really just served to get Superman where he needed to go. Yes. Yeah, and that's not to say that I don't like the Silver Age or that 50s era, because I do. But I will sing the praises of that era for, for very different reasons. And I think that's one of the reasons why I am such a fan of, of Superman in all his eras, because each era has something that I just really love about the character. So, uh, Page three, it made me laugh when Superman announces his presence by just throwing a crate through the wall and then laughing as the men scurry about. <laughs> Very uh, typical Golden Age stunt. Uh, page four, I really didn't like the scene of Superman shooting the guy and then stopping the bullet. Really? Yeah. I'm okay with it a little more here than I was when Mark Wade pulled the same stunt in Birthright. But only because this is still the period where Superman is still much more physical and and violent against criminals. He's not moved past that in his real-world history. I mean, I I don't think scenes like this have any place in modern Superman comics. What about when Dean Cain did it to John Shea? Yeah, I didn't like that either. (laughs) (laughs) That episode had problems outside of that, but yeah. (laughs) I just think Superman should be above this. But I'm I'm okay with it a little more here in this era just because of the era that it's in. Mm -hmm. But I I, I actually really liked it. Um, (laughs) But because it's this era, uh, I'll agree with you. I I don't think – this is something I could see them doing now. Uh, and that's not me being cr- overly critical of the current people doing Superman, but I could see Grant Morrison or even Scott Lobdell 
pulling this kind of thing to be kind of funny. Um, but here, yeah, it, it, it makes more sense because this Superman is is just so no-nonsense. Yeah. Pages 5 and 6, as I said a few minutes ago, I loved the uh, story point slash plot twist of Clark getting accused for murder. From the opening text, I thought it was going to be a much larger part of the story, and I really wish it had been. Uh, I will say, though, I loved the sequence on... Yeah, I guess I guess that is page 6, where he... Um, evades the police and leaps to the next building and breaks his handcuffs all while still dressed as Clark Kent. Yeah, that's great. So often um, in both the comics and especially on the radio where it just gets ridiculous after a while, he's got to change to Superman before he can do anything super that you miss out on these neat moments. Um, Pages 7 to 11, not much to say about these pages, which I kind of feel bad about since it's a third of the story, but you do enough of these and you kind of run out of things to say about Superman's various antics. (laughs) But I will say, since I complained about this being so much of the story, at least we got five solid pages of action-heavy Wayne Boring art. Even in 1940, before he's developed that classic Wayne Boring style that he would carry through the 50s and 60s, Boring still draws one great Superman. Especially with Don Camasaro inking this particular story seems a little less consistent from panel to panel than the daily newspaper stories they've been doing, but it wouldn't surprise me if there were other inkers besides Kamasaro at this point, because they, like we said earlier, they just had so much to do. I think a lot of stories were many hands working. Um, and on page eight, I love that Sagdorf's tent has a little sign on it that says headquarters. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> just, just, just so you don't confuse it with the mess hall, um, I guess. Oh, and on page nine, Superman wraps the guy up in his own gun, which might be the first time he's done that. So I got a kick out of that. Uh, page twelve, but then we get to this page, and I actually had to read this three times to make sure I was actually reading what I thought I did or what I read and didn't miss something. I mean, Clark holds this guy at gunpoint and forces him to confess. It's one thing to see Superman grab a guy and dangle him off a telephone wire or threaten to throw him off a cliff or whatever, but you've kind of come to expect that from stories that preceded this one. But seeing mild-mannered Clark Kent hold a man at gunpoint and threaten to kill him, it's just <laughs> its just unsettling. And, and combined with the catch-the-bullet scene from earlier, it kind of put me off the story as a whole, even though compared to other stories it was, you know pretty solid and and i had no major complaints otherwise (laughs) i do like in that last panel that uh carlton just looks completely bored at the fact that clark and perry are talking about the story like am i gonna get arrested now can i I go please i have things to do (laughs) um like you I, i really like the splash page um just really just the complete opposite of the splash page for the previous story of being really dynamic page two you know boring's art is so crisp and smooth that i almost kind of prefer this version of superman that he does to his 50s version uh in a really weird kind of way because uh his 50 i i i don't hate wayne boring by any stretch of the imagination it's just there's a certain sameness to the, to it 
that after a while I get kind of bored with that if it makes any sense. Yeah, I I can understand what you're saying there. I mean, he I do say, I will say this though. I love nobody drew a haggard working Clark Kent like Wayne Boring did in the Silver Age. Cuz he, you know, the the he's one of the few people that showed him with the tie loosened and the shirt, you know, the top button undone. So um page 3, I wonder if uh Boring was using pictures of Hitler for reference here for Rival and the way he's standing there making his speech. That crossed my mind, especially in um, five. And because it looks out of place from every once in a while, the uh, these uh, in these Golden Age stories, I've noticed there'll be a panel that is so much more illustrative than the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. That I get the feeling that the the artist was using some kind of reference, and here you could almost you could see him taking a picture of Hitler, and kind of striking the same pose. So it, it's kind of weird, but I, I could be completely wrong on that. Um, kind of perked my ears up. It was the symbol on his hat. Yes. Yeah, definitely, and, and the hat itself looks kind of Nazi esque. So. Uh, page four, Superman is uh, really hardcore here, uh, and, and like I said, I, I actually kind of like it. I, I, I was amused by the whole thing. Page five, I love the look on Clark's face at the bottom of the page. Um, the plot is a bit goofy, as we were kind of talking about. It doesn't really hang together all that well, yeah. but I kind of dig it nonetheless. Um, page six, uh, two notes here. One silly. How could the cops not see him leaping like that? Because, uh, you know, he, he basically flies up. But on the other hand, Boring really sells that suit. And you can really tell that he's wearing a three-piece, like, you know, full-on you know, business suit. And I really like that. I always preferred Clark with a vest over a jacket anyways. Uh, and kind of a classic, like the way, uh, Alex Ross drew him in the, um, in the, uh, peace on earth. Oh, okay. One shot where he has like the double breasted suit and the vest and the tie. I always thought that looked better. Uh, and I do like the fact that I didn't realize that the blue suit went back this far. He I really suit. didn't. He had a blue suit in Action Comics number one. Yeah, but I but for some reason when I read them, I always remembered him wearing different colored suits, mm. and I don't know why. So that's just my weird misrem. I have a good memory, but sometimes it lies to me. Um, page seven, Superman looks so determined on the bottom of the page. Uh, it's, it's the one standout bit from from that. Um, from that scene and page eight again i wonder if that one panel of sagdorf is photo reference from somewhere because again it just yeah it looks so different from the rest of the story um pages nine through three uh this is this is just a great scene superman is just tearing up the place and we get three full pages of awesome and you know i i I understand the feeling that Okay, now we got to go through the three pages because it does feel like filler at this point when you get to this point in the story. Like, okay, we got to stretch this out another couple of pages. Just, uh, just have Superman tear something up. <laughs> so, um, page twelve. Wow, Clark just pulled a gun on this guy and then forced him to a cab, and then they got out of the cab and went to the top floor of the daily. I mean, 
how does this, you know, you don't really think of how the whole thing plays out unless you really start thinking about how everything played out. Because this guy, I mean, is, were they sitting there waiting for the cab going, you say anything, I'll shoot you. <laughs> so, and this is my question. How does Lois ever think of Clark as a weakling <laughs> after page 13? I mean, seriously, how does she... Because it's like, you're a wimp. You remember when I held that guy by gunpoint? Oh, yeah, <laughs> you creeped me out at the end, and I didn't want to talk to you for a while, but I was strangely aroused. Yeah, I remember that day well. Um, I think my biggest problem is that there are a bunch of plot threads that are just left dangling. We never see anything more with Sagdorf. And we never see anything more with Rybell. And they played like a key part to the middle of this story. And it's just like, oh, Clark Clark cleared his name, so who cares? <laughs> the fifth columnist got away, but Clark isn't going to jail. So everyone can relax now. Yeah. It's just it's just very strange. Um I uh again, I like this story um not as much as the fourth one from this issue, which I think uh to me is the best one. But uh, what I like about these issues of Superman in particular is that they really seem to have a sense of how to of where to put what story. Like you start off with something kind of goofy and then you get something kind of serious with Clark being accused of murder and then you go right back to goofy. <laughs> uh, and then you end with strength. And it seems like every issue of Superman I've read from this era kind of had that pattern. And I, and I was wondering if that was done on purpose. I haven't really noticed that looking at them. Um, I, I'm, I'm very poor at looking at the issue as a whole when I cover an issue of Superman. Because I'm usually too focused on each individual story, but I should probably go back and look. But you might be right. It's easy to get lo- – believe me, it's easy to get lost and uh, not, not see the forest for the trees when you're looking at this stuff. Because sometimes Jeffrey and I will be talking about something. He'll say – he'll something will come out of his mouth and I'm like, how did I not see that? <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm sure there was some thought put into it. Because if you look at like the anthology titles like Action, you know, they lead off with Superman, obviously the mm-hmm. biggest seller. And then they end with Zaytara, which was the second most popular feature. So. And in the middle, you had varying degrees of okay. <laughs> Pet Morgan. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, is that all you had on? That's all I got. All right. Well, this one, like the first story, was also reprinted in Superman Archives Volume 2 and Superman Chronicles Volume 5. So we're going to take another break and then come back for the third story. In the decade of the 1970s and 80s, not even the great city of Metropolis could be spared the ravages of an energy crisis, supercriminal attacks, or disco. The job of protecting the city fell to Superman, whose battle for truth, justice, and the American way made him a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. Charlie Niemeyer in association with the Superman Podcast Network presents 
Superman in the Bronze Age. Superman of the Bronze Age is a bi-weekly podcast highlighting the Bronze Age adventures of the Man of Steel in various comic titles. Follow along at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com. All right, so the third story in Superman number eight was like pretty much every story at this time, untitled publication, but later called The Carnival Crooks. It was written by Jerry Siegel with art by Paul Cassidy, both pencils and inks. Carnival Crooks, scenting an easy victim in Clark Kent, take the meek reporter's pocketbook for a ride. But in doing so, they chart their own doom. For the timid Daily Planet scribe is in reality none other than Superman, the courageous, crusading Man of Steel. As our story opens, Clark Kent and Lois Lane are on a date. Well, Clark is on a date. Lois just seems annoyed at the whole thing, as usual. But in any event, Clark and Lois are at the Jackal Carnival. Despite Lois's shrewish behavior, they seem to be having a pretty good time until Clark is taken for a handful of money in one of the ball toss games. Shocked that a carnival game might be a ripoff, Lois demands that Clark be a man and stand up to the game runners, but then storms off in a huff when he bumbles it. Returning to the Daily Planet, she tells Editor White that she wants to do an expose on the carnival racket. White gives her the okay, but Lois storms off again when Clark is reluctant to play along, saying he's not sure that he was cheated. Knowing that Lois is probably headed straight into danger, Clark changes to Superman and follows Lois as she heads right back to the carnival. As Superman watches, Lois takes pictures of the crooked game, but then is strong-armed and has her camera smashed by the game operators, Al and Chick. Lois demands to see the carnival owner, Jackal, and succeeds in getting the men fired. Or so she thinks. After Lois leaves, we, the reader, find out that the firing was just a stall tactic, as Al and Chick revisit Jackal, and we learn that they're in on the scam. Jackal then calls the trio of men to his trailer and gloats over all the money he's pulling in from hiring pickpockets to work the crowd and other men to run the crooked games. At this point, Superman has had enough, and being a Bachman Turner Overdrive fan is about to start taking care of business. When, <laughs> when he hears a man pitching a fit over having been ripped off by the ball toss game. Enraged, Superman smashes through the side of the building and yanks out the game runners. One of them attacks with a knife, but Superman swallows the blade. He then grabs the game runners, ramming their head through the side of the holes in the, the, uh, the ball toss board, and encourages people to throw baseballs at their heads. <laughs> While the game owners are getting multiple concussions, Superman gets his money from the register, and then grabs the game owners and tosses them high into the air. He then smashes the building into splinters, and catches the men before they hit the ground, and you know, die. The men's, scream, the men's screams draw a gang of other thugs, who quickly find out that they are no match for the Man of Steel. In the ensuing mayhem, one of the thugs slips away and warns Jackal, who promptly makes a run for it. 
Superman speeds after the jackal's car, soon grabbing a hold of it and bringing it to a stop. He then rips open the top of the car like a can of five-cent tuna and delivers jackal in a bag full of stolen goods to the police, and that's that. Meanwhile, Lois tries to call the story in to the paper, only to get, bit, only to get a busy signal. Thinking he could do her a good turn, Superman offers to give her a lift back to the Daily Planet. Who are you? Lois asks as they go. How do you manage to show up exactly when I need you? Be patient, Lois, Superman responds. Someday I may be able to give you that answer. Superman then drops Lois off and later returns as Clark, saying that he's had a change of heart and that they should do something about the crooked carnival after all. But Lois tells him he's behind the times, because the carnival has already been taken care of, thanks to Superman. The end. And then there is one final panel with a thus far rare occurrence as Superman breaks the fourth wall and speaks directly to the readers, telling us, Be wary of unscrupulous operators of gambling games. They are always on the lookout for unsuspecting victims. Thanks, Superman. (laughs) And knowing is half the battle. This was such a waste of Superman's time. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're not fighting giants or free, you know, clearing Clark's name from deadly fifth columnists. No, we're we're taking down a crooked carnival. (laughs) Wow. Oh, man. Um, The... um, Page one, ah, Lois, you are such a shrew. (laughs) Yes. Well, I finally decided to give you a chance. Really? Okay. Thank you, Lois. Uh, I appreciate the, uh, or am I thinking, or do I have my notes mixed up? Is this the one where she says that she'll, she's finally going to give him a tumble, basically? Or am I going to have to? That's the next. That's next. Oh, sorry. I got my notes. (laughs) Wow. I have the same. Okay. Um, Still, Lois is a shrew. Uh, Page two, this is the worst con game in history. (laughs) I mean, just the way this whole thing plays out, where the guy's just like, and I'll take another, and another, and another, and another. Wait, 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 how much do I owe you? You owe for 30 more sets. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Uh, And you know know this guy's crooked, because look at those pants. (laughs) Those checkered pants are just—he's up to no good. There must have been um, a checkered pants store in the golden age because a lot of people wear these checkered pants. Page three: the use of the word "panty waist" always makes me laugh because <laughs> it just seems like really weird in a, in a comic that was kind of geared towards kids. Um, page uh, page five: well, I think I see where this is going with the, with the guy that owns the carnival. I mean, his name is Jackal. <laughs> That's not subtle at all. No. Um, pages seven through ten. This is this story is very light on plot, but the action here is kind of fun. Uh, page eleven. Wow, he just ran down that cop. Whoa! And Superman artistically looks good at the bottom of the page. And my final note is page thirteen. Thanks for the tip, Superman. I know that the next time I'm at a carnival, I'll be wary of unscrupulous. Uh, uh, Guys that run the games, yeah. In purple checkered pants. <laughs> In purple checkered pants. Uh, I really didn't have too many notes on this one either. I mean, it was a solid and entertaining story, but it's just one of those where, where there wasn't a whole lot uh, standout note-wise. Um, and that, I don't think that should be taken as a knock against the story because compared to some others to this point, it was actually really well told plot-wise. Uh, but just for a few page-by-page page one another great splash 
points off for not tying it into the story, but it's a really nice use of the space and a dynamic shot as Superman lifts up two cars and the, the drivers try to fire on him with Tommy guns. Um, page two, I really like the art on this page. It's basically a, a full page of talking heads, but the art keeps it from being boring. I mean, Cassidy uses a variety of camera angles, and, and there's background detail that just keeps it flowing and interesting. As much as I, as much as much the art from this era gets slagged on, I, I really like to give them credit when it's due. Uh, page three, panel two. I loved the subtlety of Lois throwing the prize in the trash. It was a funny moment and surprising in this era where they usually describe through narration or dialogue everything that the characters are doing. But here is one place that I had an issue with the story because Lois seems to be jumping the gun a bit on the carnival being run by thieves. I mean, carnival games are never fair and always require you to pay way too much for cheap junk. But at the same time, it fits within the character of Lois as Siegel has written her to this point to just fly off the handle about stuff without really thinking it through. So whether it was intentional or not, that she's not that Lois isn't being, you know, reasonable and logical, it it fits with how she's been depicted. Uh plus I liked White's reaction as he seems to express doubt, just like I did, but says, if you can find proof of something that's going on, we'll give you the space. You know, he, if there's a story he'll he'll there's room for it, but he's not gonna let Lois just go off on her high horse and, and rant about stuff. Um jumping ahead to page eight I will admit that even though there is no way they wouldn't be severely injured with getting hit on the head with multiple baseballs, Superman shoving the guy into the game board made me laugh. It was just a classic stunt of the Golden Age Superman. And page 13, I really liked the scene with Superman and Lois at the end, uh, with him giving her a ride back to the planet. In all honesty, it was more than likely space filler than an intentional scene, but I liked it. And I thought the dialogue between the two was interesting in that center panel. Uh, for those of you who don't have the issue or the story in front of you, this is the uh, the panel where that I quoted in my synopsis where she asks how he shows up and he says, maybe I'll give you the answer someday. Um, I just found that interesting in light of a story that we'll be talking about in a few episodes. So make a mental note of that and we'll, we'll come back to it then. Um, that's it. I, like I said, it was a fun story, but it was kind of light on plot. So, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Fine, fine. Um, I mean, I, I, I said that it was a complete waste of his time, but at the same time, you know, you need goofy little stories like this every yeah. once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but if you want to read this, like the other two, it's in Superman Archives Volume 2 and Superman Chronicles Volume 5. Uh, We are going to take one last break, and then we'll come back for the fourth story, which Mike is going to tell us about. The internet is really, really great. For Guy Gardner Podcast. I've got a fast connection, so I don't have to wait. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. There's always some new site for Guy Gardner Podcasts. I browse all day and night for Guy Gardner Podcasts. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light for Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is more... 
Guy Gardner podcasts. The internet is for... And sometimes Kyle Rayner podcasts. Why you think the net was born? Guy Gardner podcasts. Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneofthegays.libsyn.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingall. It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Internet is for internet is for internet is for just one of the guys dot libson dot com. Yeah! All right, so we are back with the final story of the issue, which Mike is going to tell us about. Do you prefer Mike or Michael? I really, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm okay either way. Okay. Uh, I, <laughs> I've always wanted you, me, and Kaiser on the same episode. <laughs> Somebody else, so that they could go, "Hey, Mike," and we can all go, "What?" So, <laughs> and like our last names are a letter, an extra letter, and a couple different letters apart. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. The the last time I recorded with uh, J. David Weeder, he was just mentioning how before he got to know either one of us, he was often confusing us. <laughs> anyway, well, I'm away, the sir. shorter one. So, <laughs> well, I, the only way I can begin this one is in the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime and Superman who prosecutes the offenders. This is their story. The story title is Perone and the Drug Gang. It's written by Jerry Siegel with art by Joe Schuster and Wayne Boring, who make a very good team, I might add. Uh, this has another really awesome intro piece with a splash page that looks a lot like the cover. And actually takes up the entire page, which is kind of rare. With the city of Metropolis helpless before the depredations of drug-crazed bandits, Superman finds a task worthy of his unique powers. The eradication of lawlessness deliberately fostered and uh, protected by a a corrupt practitioner of the law. Apparently, Metropolis is just bursting with violence, which Superman seeks to remedy. In short order, we see we see Lois Lane shot at a man so crippled he has a wheelchair and a crutch get hit by a car and some kids nearly getting run over. Superman intervenes and throws the car over his shoulder, he tells the cops to stop those men and all are caught with the exception of one bandit. The officer in charge informs Lois that all of the men were dope addicts. Superman spots the escaped man and follows him to his boss, Old John who is apparently an investor named John Perone. Nate, the escaped man, begs for another fix and tells John about Superman. John doesn't believe in Superman because nobody believes in Superman <laughs> and gives Nate a quick fix before communicating with someone via this really weird-looking box, which I, I know is just like an office-to-office communication thing, but it still looks very strange. looks like he's talking into the radio. 
Superman thinks that Perone is talking to the lawyer in the office next door, a man named Brokenshire. The Man of Steel devises a plan that might be problematical, but is worth the risk. And I really like the word problematical, and I'm going to seek ways to use it in my everyday life. He flies to an express company and scribbles and scribbles on a piece of paper with the company letterhead uh, on top of it. He drops the letter in front of Nate, who delivers it to John, who thinks there is a big shipment of morphine. Nate asks for the chance to steal the stuff so he can get some himself, but John tells him that, nah, I'll, I'll take care of that myself. Superman is ready to act, but Lois decides that she will finally give Clark a tumble and says they're going out that night and you don't have a choice. They do, but Clark is distracted through the movie, and they leave early. After some typical Golden Age Lois and Clark back and forth, Lois spots John and his men in front of the warehouse that is supposedly holding the morphine and smells trouble. She has Clark drop her off and immediately calls Sergeant Casey. Meanwhile, Clark changes to Superman and heads to the warehouse as Casey and Lois do the same. Lois and Casey reveal their positions to the crypt. Crooks and Superman is forced to intervene. Casey tries to arrest Superman because, well, that's just his thing, but he has to settle for, you know, the real bad guys. Perone finds himself in a tight spot, but calls upon his lawyer compatriot Brokenshire to help him. We see the trial play out, and in the end, the whole thing turns into an episode of Law and Order where the defendants are found guilty because the cops uh, are found not guilty, excuse me, because the cops didn't have a lick of evidence to prove their charges. Lois, uh, Lois, Clark, and Perry talk about this later, and there is some debate on law versus justice. Oddly, Perone invites Lois to a party that night, and she agrees, despite it being kind of fishy, and despite Clark saying that they wouldn't think of it. During the party, Nate, who Perone had been holding, tries to escape, makes a scene, and is taken away. Lois sees this as their chance and tries to follow, but is told that no one is to leave yet. Clark sneaks off, changes into Superman, but is too late to prevent Perone from killing Nate. He follows the crooks as they seek to dispose of the body at a nearby gasoline storage tank. Superman prevents them from destroying the body and imprisons them in their own truck. He heads back to the Grey Goose, which is where the party was being held, calls Casey, tells him that they are being held against their will, and soon Lois and Clark are free and join Casey at the police station where Perone and Brokenshire are arrested for Nate's murder. Lois believes that Superman had something to do with all of this, and Clark takes this out by saying that she gives Superman credit for everything, proving that Clark read the first story from this book. And that's it. This really does play out like an episode of Law, uh, of Law and Order it, 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 in a weird kind of way. Um, maybe I, I just watched too much Law and Order. I didn't think about it until you pointed it out, but you're right. <laughs> uh, do you care if I go first on this one? Or? Go ahead. All right. Um, like you said, the story opens with a full-page splash that's basically the same as the cover. It's not the exact same image, but it's the same scene, and clearly one was based off the other. I think this is the last full-page splash to open a Superman story for quite a while. I don't know why they really experimented with a full-page opening splash, because they've done it in maybe a dozen stories over the last few months. Um, At first I thought it was a Jack Burnley thing, but there have been other artists within the Schuster studio doing it as well, so... Maybe, maybe they're just playing around with it. Um, either way, this is the last one we're going to get for a while, which is kind of disappointing because I like the big 
opening to the story, but, you know, neither here nor there, I guess. Page two, dude, they are running over school kids and crippled people in wheelchairs. Either stuff just got real, or Siegel is mistaking evil men for doing <laughs> evil things for character again. <laughs> wow. Page, page three, uh, panel four, the officer says... Their gang chief must deliberately dope his men before sending them out. He's got to be apprehended at all costs. First, why the heck would he think the leader is forcing these guys to use drugs? I mean, I I can understand, you know, if all the guys are high, he would think the gang chief is running a drug ring or, or smuggling or something. But that's a bit different than forcing drugs into someone's system. But second, just a personal note... When people talk about dope in these old stories, I think of my grandparents because, as many people from their generation did or, or do, they refer to any and all illegal substances as dope. Heroin, <laughs> dope. Marijuana, dope. Yes. Cocaine, it's dope. He must have been on the dope, yeah. Um, but also on this page, Superman uses his X-ray vision to spot Nate inside a trash can. A, a man-sized trash can, might I point out. <laughs> but the way they depict it is just... In the art, it just looks like uh, basically like the trash can is transparent. So again, we have the artist kind of playing around with how to depict Superman's abilities, which has been one thing I've found really interesting in going through all these stories, especially with the x-ray vision. I, I just want to know what necessitated the people that designed these trash cans to actually write place ashes inside. <laughs> Was there like an epidemic of people walking up with like their ashes looking at the can and not knowing what to do next? <laughs> I'm just curious. I just, you know, why, why, why are there directions on shampoo? I mean, <laughs> lather, rinse, repeat. Yes, exactly. Uh, and I like the last panel of the page when Nate is crawling out of the trash can and he's high and paranoid and in the background you see this little Superman swooping in towards him. That's kind of neat. Uh, page five, surprise, surprise, Superman is right-handed. Don't know wow. Why, don't I know why that's important, that. but wanted to point it out. Um, jumping ahead to page eight, I liked the scene at the top of this page with Lois and uh, Sergeant Casey cornered by the thugs and superman busts in and we get his thoughts where he says i've got to draw their fire or lois and casey are goners which is seemingly more heroic than scenes in the past where superman just busts in and starts tearing the place up which at times could seem like he's just after the villains and saving the the victims is kind of an afterthought and i'm explaining that poorly but but the essence of it is that i liked his thought process and and feeling like he was putting himself out there to save people rather than just to to uh, kick some villains' butts. Um, not much else to say as far as page by page. I think that this was my least favorite story of the issue. It, it felt like another instance of Siegel writing without much of a plan. Um, to be fair, this was a little better than some of the stories that just jump from random event to random event without much connecting them, but we start out with this guy leading a drug ring, and it felt like he was ready to wrap the story up around page 9, but then he realized he had four more pages, so he's like, okay, now he kills a guy, which he really didn't have enough space to deal with, so by the time he got to page 13, he just kind of had to wrap it up real quick. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, I've, you know, I said it at the beginning of this episode that, you know, most of the time they didn't know how to end the story. Mm-hmm. 
But again, this is such a new art form that there is no rules on how to pace a story. Yes. You know, they're they're kind of figuring it out as they go along. So, yes. and that is one thing that I am guilty of forgetting when I look through a lot of these old Golden Age stories. Um, but yeah, that's that's a very good point. Yeah, I'm... and the dialogue. Some of these pages are just walls of text. <laughs> yes, at, they at, are, especially <laughs> the trial scene. Yes, look at page four. Which actually isn't bad compared to when you get to, say, page 6 or page 9 or 10 is the worst. Which <laughs> It's like Siegel was getting paid by the consonant. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, just, I, guess, uh, I guess this was the one where he just stretched his wings artistically as a writer. I guess. Um, art-wise, it was okay. It, it did feel rushed at times, but was perfectly serviceable for what it was so what'd you have um (laughs) i like the splash page as i mentioned during uh during the synopsis i just can't get over the fact that the dude has a wheelchair and a crutch (laughs) i really want to know the the whys (laughs) of this panel because does does he have the crutch on the wheelchair so that if he has to get up like he's he uses the wheelchair to get around like on long hauls, but if he's just like going across the room, he can use a crutch. That's just it's just weird. Yeah, um, I've seen people do that, but usually it's with a cane, not a crutch. These uh these kids also seem completely unconcerned that there was a car <laughs> about to run them over. <laughs> so uh so you want to go play some ball? <laughs> yeah yeah I really want to play some ball. <laughs> Good lore. <laughs> um, page, um, I lost the page three. I, uh, I just love the guy hiding in the in the the ash can and Superman losing <laughs> using his X ray vision to see it. It's an interesting artistic trick, but it also looked like I am a master criminal <laughs> and not like you know a paranoid guy hopped up on whatever he is hopped up on. Um, page four. I know that. In in both of my synopsis, I joke about the fact that no one believes in Superman. Mm-hmm. Frankly, if some dopehead came to me and said a guy <laughs> flew down and stopped, I would be like, "Yeah, yeah, whatevs." Yeah, <laughs> what do you got? This guy is like the the best kind of evil because he looks really unassuming. I mean, he looks like a particularly nasty math teacher <laughs> or something. Say math teacher, yeah. Uh, but but you know he's running a drug ring th- that is apparently causing the worst crime wave Metropolis <laughs> has ever seen. Um, I like how on page five, uh, Nate's like, you know, I could I could steal that for you. He's like, no, no, I, I think you got to go into hiding. Um, I don't trust you. I mean, I'll steal that myself. So yeah, this is the worst. I but really, when you think of Superman's plan. This is like the plan that a 10-year-old would come with, come up with. Okay, so I'll write down that there's a shipment, but there really isn't a shipment. And, and I'll put it on the company letterhead, and I'll drop it in front of the drug addict, and he'll take it to the guy, and it'll all fall into place. <laughs> and sadly, that's how it plays out, except for the one complication that no one saw coming. Lois wants to go out with Clark. <laughs> And I think that's why I kind of like this story so much because there is so much random happening and yet as separate as all the plot elements are, it does hold together as a reading experience. 
like the fact that Lo- that Clark doesn't want to be with Lois is so weird because he's been trying so hard to get dates with her. Yeah, it's just strange. They, uh, I do like their conversation in the car. I don't get this. You've pestered me a date for a date for days. Actually, Lois, it's, it's been longer than days. And now that I've accepted, you act like you're anxious to get rid of me. Uh, you'll have to excuse me, Lois. I'm not used to the hectic nightlife to tell the truth. I'm sleepy. Yeah, sleepy. You were the guy that held a gun on a dude like two days ago. So, and I like the fact that he tells her that she's been reading too many detective stories. So we get the the exciting uh, scene at the uh, the warehouse, which is actually really cool. I, I I think Casey is like the worst cop ever, but um, but it's still it's still kind of neat to see him and Lois teaming up. I love on page eight the shot of Superman throwing the guy into the crate. Mm. Uh, it's that one shot in the book that looks different from, or in the story that looks different from every other shot in the story. <laughs> it's like wow, this is this is the illustrative one, and yeah. now everything's back to comic book. Um, yep, trying to catch Casey. Uh, Casey tries to catch Superman. That's getting kind of silly. So then we get the trial, and wow. Siegel crams a lot into this that I'm really surprised at. Not so much that he has a trial, but that he actually plays off the whole, you know, Your Honor, Your Honor, I call upon you to instruct the jury to bring in a verdict of not guilty. True, the prosecutor has proven my client's guilty of robbing a storeroom, but he has brought no evidence to indicate their guilt in the robbery of a storehouse which is the charge in the indictment now this is where i'm going to say well actually he should have just gotten the case dismissed with prejudice but still that's kind of interesting in a comic book which isn't the most sophisticated means of telling a story Mm -hmm. to have that twist that perry mason twist right there in the middle so but here's here's the most interesting thing um that uh, for me in the story is the middle of this page, which is page 10. Lois goes, it's a crime that lawyers should be able to use to, to be able to twist legality so that proven crooks can go free. And Perry says, there's no regulation against a lawyer proving his client is not guilty of which the charge he has been indicted. However, speaking as an individual, I'm certain, I'm certain Brookenshire advises criminals how to get away with their depredations and encourages them in the commission of crimes. And it's just like, this is actually kind of an interesting debate going on right here in the middle of a Superman story from the Golden Age. Hmm. I, uh, I I think that's why I was caught off guard because I'm like, are they are they really arguing law versus justice? <laughs> okay, that's uh, and, Cl- and Clark's just sitting in the background going, I've really got other places to go. Um, would you really trust the guy you were just trying to send to jail when he invites you to his party? And no, I uh, I think this is. I mean, Lois goes to prove that, you know, he's a bad guy, but still. Um, is it really sad that Nate had to die for these guys, to, for Superman to be able to do anything? <laughs> I mean, seriously, the only reason they go to jail is Nate gets killed. Yeah. That's it. I can't prove that you were robbing a storeroom, storehouse, whatever, that I set up in the first place. So it was kind of a bogus crime to begin with, but I know you're guilty of other stuff, so it's okay. So now i got to prove that you're guilty of one of the worst crimes imaginable. That's really weird. 
Um, yeah, and uh, the 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 wonky ending. Bah! You always give Superman credit for everything. You are such a child sometimes, Clark. That that line was kind of out of out of character for Clark. So, uh, I mean, I I I actually really liked the story, but only because I'm surprised at everything Siegel was able to put into it. Yeah. This is very ambitious for a for a story of this time period. And uh I mean you you have action, you have intrigue, you have political discussions. I mean it's just just and you, and you have a guy hanging out inside of an ash can. <laughs> you got a got a guy in a wheelchair getting hit by a car and <laughs> the car going after those kids makes me <laughs> laugh every time I see it. Uh, I'll have to put that panel in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh but that's pretty much all I got. Um Really solid issue overall. Uh, I enjoyed all four stories, yes. uh, some more than others. But still, this is one of those times where you read something. It's like, wow, I, f- I feel satisfied that uh, of what I just read. And really, I, I always try to put myself in the mindset of somebody reading this at the time. Mm-hmm. And wow, this book must have lasted you days. Yeah. Because I remember when I was a kid, when you got a like an annual or a thick book, that book lasted you a while. You you took your time to read it, and here you had four separate stories plus all the ads. I mean, it's just a great package. I think this might be the first issue of Superman with new material because the first three had reprints, mm-hmm. but the first one with new material where there wasn't a single story that I would call bad. Mm-hmm. Um. Just one, if we can take another minute on the story, because I know you're kind of familiar with Golden Age Batman. Did this, to you, feel closer to the plot line of a Batman story from this era? Yeah, actually, I'd agree with that. The very basics of it, we have a crime wave and a drug ring and corrupt officials, and the hero lays a trap and and waits for them to fall into it. The story is chock full of Siegelisms and and Superman-type scenes, and it doesn't really make me think that he was intentionally trying to ape Bill Finger, but... With just a few minor tweaks, I can see this working really well as a Batman story. Oh, definitely. I could, I could see you know Bruce setting somebody up and it going badly, so he has to he has to figure out another way to bring the crook down. Um, and if you're going to ape anybody, I think Bill Finger was like the best writer of the Golden Age of everything that I've read, especially his early Green Lantern stories, which are just amazing. I have not um, read as many of those as I would like to. I'm just I'm impressed by them because they're simple plots and yet they don't feel that way. And there's twists and turns along the way. So if he's going to ape anybody, that's 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 the guy to ape. He really is. This is off the topic of Superman, but have you ever read Bill Finger's? He wrote a handful of Captain America stories in the fifties. No. Yeah. Oh wow. Or it, it was like Captain America and I think All Winter Squad. Is that? What it was. Yeah, he, the, okay. yeah, that was the team he was a part of okay. towards the end of the, yeah. the Golden Age. I don't know if it, if it was like a strict Captain America story, but Captain America was involved. I didn't know if you'd ever read any of those. Wow, no, that sounds amazing. I'd like to see what he would do with the Marvel characters. Yeah. <laughs> well, other features and ads in this... Oh, that story, by the way, like the others, was in Superman Archives Volume 2 and Superman Chronicles Volume 5. Um, other features and ads in this issue of Superman... Like many others, it starts with a frontispiece. Uh, this one is a bit of a return to form as we see a center image of Superman running towards the camera, and around that are six panels 
none of which seem to be from previous issues, but they show Superman doing all sorts of heroic feats, and there's the, the Superman logo and the world's greatest adventure strip character. I've said before I would really love some of these as posters or decent quality prints, and I'm disappointed that they weren't included in the Chronicles volumes. I'd like to see modern artists taking the same images and doing their versions of it. Oh, that'd be awesome. That'd be great. But I love this page. I really do. Every time I see a page like this, I I, I, I just I stare at it just because I'm like, that is so cool. It's Superman and he's doing stuff. Well, there's really nothing like it in modern comics. No, not at all. Uh, there's also a full-page ad for Action Comics. It's just the generic ad that we've seen before. And there is a half-page ad for Batman number three. Woohoo! And a full-page ad for All-Star Comics number three, featuring the official debut of a team that you know a little about. Justice Society of America, Justice in fact. Society of America. I don't know when the episode's coming out because I forget how John uh, has this thing scheduled, but John Wilson and I will be discussing that on an episode of Golden Age Superman. Cool. Whole issue. Boy, that took a while to talk about. <laughs> I imagine. That's <laughs> like a lot of... eight stories? Eight stories, and you got side things, and you have like all of the like weird family guy moments, and it's just, <laughs> just really goofy. Uh, I love the text on this ad, too. Here it is, All-Star Comics number three. The most exciting comic book ever published. In this issue, the leading adventure characters from Flash, All-American, Adventure, and Fun Comics, which was actually more fun at the time, but anyway, describe personally their most exciting adventures. Attend this first meeting of the Justice Society of America and the greatest comic thrill of your life. And that is the amazing thing about this story is that they don't have an adventure together. It's yeah. them sitting around a hotel where Sandman knocked everybody out so that they wouldn't be bothered, <laughs> which is just creepy to begin with. And they just all sit around telling stories and because Johnny Thunder wants them to. <laughs> but, but it's still one of the most important comic books oh, definitely. of the Golden Age. I mean, without the Justice Society, you wouldn't have the JLA or you wouldn't have Avengers. You wouldn't have Fantastic Four. Well, more to the point, it's the first time, really, that a group of separate superheroes acknowledge that they all exist in the same world. Mm -hmm. Because at the very beginning of the story, they're all looking at Johnny Thunder's looking at a rack of comic books. And usually with these stories, which is always very weird, uh, you know, two of them, the, the Golden Age Red Tornado, who was Ma Hunkle. And Wildcat were both inspired by Green Lantern comics. Wow. So it's just kind of strange, but just the fact that they're all talking to each other, you know, it's just, and I still get excited when I see stuff like this for the first time in a certain form. Look at the Avengers yeah. from this past summer. I mean, yeah, it was a great movie. Yeah, it was everything you want from a comic book film. But at the same time, you just, forgive the pun, you marveled at the fact that Cap, Iron Man, and Thor are on the screen together, talking. So I just figure that that's what this book was in the in the forties. Yeah. Uh, but other ads, we have the crypto ray gun ad again in this issue, and we have full page ads for other Superman merchandise, including shirts and shorts, toys, bubblegum and picture story cards, and moccasins. 
You know, I like Superman stuff, but really moccasins? Well, now, who doesn't want a good pair of Superman moccasins? Yeah, because nothing says, you know, stylish like brown with a character that has blue, red, and yellow in his costume on it. Yeah. <laughs> that looks good. The sweatshirt looks interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, if I was 10 I, years old in 1940, I would buy a sweatshirt. I'm a little uncomfortable at the underwear ad. Uh <laughs> But then again, I'm creeped out by watching Underoos ads from the 70s that are on YouTube that yeah. really just I, – I literally feel like Benson and Stabler are going to kick my door in and, yeah, and arrest me immediately. Expecting Chris Hansen to come walking in from <laughs> – I raised, I raised your SVU joke and I have Dateline, sir. You win. Congratulations. Uh, um. With the bubblegum cards, there's not a lot of information in this ad, but were I to guess, I would say that these are the cards that I've talked about um, in previous episodes of the show. A listener, Steve Rogers, sent me scans of a reprint set from the mid-80s, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, I'm happy to come across this ad to get a better idea of when those original cards were produced. I knew it was you know, late 40 or, or early to mid-1941, but seeing this ad really helps me kind of narrow that down. Yeah, I've seen a few of those, like the original ones on eBay. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah. I'm never going to be able to afford that. <laughs> Just one card is like hundreds of dollars. Yes. So, and that reprint set you can find reasonably. And when I say reasonably, I, I, I mean I'm not going to pay that much for it. But <laughs> if I had the money, I would. Like if I saw it at a convention and I had the cash, I'd probably yeah. get it. But. But still, I, I love the fact that he was in a trading card set so early. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just the fact that Superman was everywhere. Oh, yeah. In, in a way that I don't think even we, you know, our generation can really understand. Uh, because we, you know, yeah, we've been through different waves of Superman mania or Supermania, I guess would be a better way to say that. But I don't think he's ever been as popular to a younger audience as he was in the forties. No. And plus these days we're just so saturated with stuff. I mean, Mm -hmm. somebody get, you know, Justin Bieber gets popular and he's got t-shirts and toys and shampoo and whatever else that singing toothbrushes, which we sell at my office supply store job, which I'm confused about, but okay. (laughs) Singing toothbrushes, singing toothbrushes, Justin Bieber and lady Gaga. Not in the same toothbrush, because that would just be weird. <laughs> That'd be really weird. Uh, uh, but last but not least in this issue, over the top of an ad for the Superman radio program, we have the 20th Superman of America page. The main message is again signed by Clark Kent and talks about loyalty. Loyalty to friends, loyalty to family, and of course, loyalty to country. Probably a great many of you feel badly about being too young to take active part in service for our country. Has it ever occurred to you that you can show your loyalty of Uncle Sam just the same? You can by being loyal to the ideals of Americanism and democracy, by keeping the fierce fires of love of country and liberty alive within you. For if every young American grows up with the sentiments of Americanism a part of his being, freedom cannot perish from the earth. I want to enlist. <laughs> I'm not kidding, too. I really, I really buy into the sentiments. I mean, I, I understand where they were kind of coming from, yeah. 
as, as a club, basically. But, uh, you know, with this and the story of the fifth columnists and all that, I, I don't think, again, this isn't something that we as a generation can understand. Can't even begin to fathom what it was like to be on the home front during World War II. I mean, it's just... It, it, I, I, I hope we never understand what that's like. Let me let me put it to you that way. And this is really only the tip of the iceberg because this was December 19... or November 1940. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're not even close to Pearl Harbor yet and all that stuff. So, uh, But like always, the page also has Superman's secret message, which can be decoded using code Mercury, number one on your Superman of America Club decoder. And the message is, be loyal to American ideals and you keep the fire of freedom ablaze. I really like the ad for the Superman radio program. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, one of the stations is WOR in New York City. They had a TV station eventually as well, Channel 9, that we would get on the cable system I I had in Pennsylvania. And every Thanksgiving for years, they would do a um, marathon of George Reeves' Superman episodes hosted by Jack Larson. I recently saw a clip on YouTube of one of the intros Mm -hmm. he did for that. That brought back so many memories when I watched that. Uh, I I also like the fact that we're seeing some of the sponsors and that in Savannah, Georgia, it's sponsored by the Dr. Pepper Bottling Company. (laughs) Yeah, this was a period in the show where it was sponsored by different people uh, or or different companies, excuse me, throughout the country, you know, regional sponsors. Before you got to Kellogg's Pep, that super super delicious delicious cereal cereal presents. (laughs) You're, you're definitely going to have to come on for a radio. Oh, def- oh, I would love it. I would love it. <laughs> Hello, boys and girls. It's your dear old Uncle Joker. We've got an internet access here in Arkham, so I'm doing a little browsing. Hmm. Low cats. Look at porn. Look at what's this? Bailey's Batman podcast, a bi-weekly podcast devoted to everything Dark Knight Detective. Well, Michael Bailey, where's Bailey's Joker podcast, eh? We'll see about that. Harley, get our things. We're going to Georgia. Hey everyone, Michael Bailey here asking you to check out my bi-weekly internet radio show, Bailey's Batman Podcast, or at least I'm asking you to check it out while you still can, until the Joker shows up on my doorstep. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a hodgepodge-type show where I discuss all aspects of the Dark Knight's history. Comics, movies, animation, even trading cards and action figures. Everything Batman-related is fair game, and yes, that does include the villains, which includes the Joker, so he won't kill me. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The site also has links to the iTunes page, the RSS feed, my Twitter handle if you're into the social media thing, and the Bailey's Batman Podcast Facebook page. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a proud member 
of the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find at batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com. I really hope that's the UPS guy. Why can't I have Batman in my basement? That's it for this episode, but Mike, I want to thank you for coming on. From Crisis to Crisis was the second podcast I listen to regularly, and and one of the shows that was a big influence on the creation of this show, obviously, so it's fun to sit down and chat some Golden Age Man of Steel with you. Oh, thank you so much. I I am a little behind, but I am slowly catching up with this this show, and and I gotta say, you have got the best dry sense of humor of any (laughs) of the Superman podcasters out there and uh you know to to a certain extent uh, i'll always think of you as oh mike <laughs> based on the email um address from yeah. when you would write into from crisis to crisis but no dude you have a great show and it was a real pleasure being part of it why don't you tell the folks all the places they can find you oh lord um well, the more germane to Superman, I, I am the co-host of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which uh, you can find at both the Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network. Jeffrey Taylor, who is uh, Mike's co-host on Green Lantern's Light, uh, and I have been making our way through the post-crisis Superman world. As we kind of talked about, we are we have reached the end of Reign of the Superman, and it's really surreal to be here because it just seems like we started yesterday. Um but that comes out just about every Thursday. We've we've been having a rough patch recently, just because our lives are not meeting in any in the the way we need them to. Uh, but there's 140 some odd episodes to catch up on if you haven't listened to that. I've recently started back uh, uh, making it bi-weekly, though it's been weekly uh, just to catch up on some stuff. Uh, the Bailey's Batman podcast, which started out as kind of an examination of the 80s Batman comics, but has now turned into kind of a potpourri thing um, where I, you know, do commentaries and talk about various eras of Batman's uh, Batman's existence. I'm going to have to have Mike on because he did the excellent Legends of the Batman podcast with Michael Kaiser, which I miss, by the way. I just want you to know that. Um, But you can find that. You can find that at baileysbatmanpodcast.com. Views from the long box has come back. Uh, it's, it's having some issues too, but I'm actually getting episodes out. Uh, that's more of my, you know, talk about whatever the heck I feel about talking about that week. Though next year uh, I may be devoting, uh, originally I was going to devote an entire year, but then I started thinking about how hard that would be. Uh, but a lot of episodes are going to be devoted to Superman next year because it's going to be its uh, 70th anniversary. You can find that at viewsfromalongbox.com. I write the reviews for Action Comics over at the Superman homepage. I'm the co-host of the live show every Monday night uh, at 11.30 Eastern. And I'm part of the Two True Freaks Network. Um, uh, I am with them, with Scott and Chris on their Comics Monthly Mondays, um, which is the third Monday of every month. Uh, we also, I'm also part of Back to the Bins, which is on that network, and Walking Dead Wednesdays. And you can find all of those at twotruefreaks.lipson.com. And that should be it. Oh, fortressofbailey2.com. I, I just want to say that most recent promo for Bailey's Batman podcast is one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard. 
dude, somebody just sent me that. <laughs> it's really cool. I was I was just like, oh, I've got to use this right now. <laughs> Is he a professional voice actor or I really he's a guy that that I know through Facebook ah. that said, "Hey, can I can I send you something?" And I'm like, "Sure, why not?" And I was like, yeah, "I'll use it not somewhere." or alive. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's not like a rabbit in a box. That's really kind of creepy. Um, but no, he he sent it to me, and like within thirty minutes, I had that thing cut together uh, the way I wanted it. So uh, it, I could not have asked. It's the best trailer that I've ever done. Mm. Uh, but for the rest of you, thanks for joining us as well. Next episode, I'll be all by myself again and looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number thirty-two. Uh, in the meantime, please stop by greatcrypton.com for show notes and images from the stories we just talked about, all back episodes, links to Michael's podcasts and, and website, and pretty much everything you need to know about this show and more. At the site, you will also find the RSS feed and the iTunes link if you want to subscribe to the show. And if you want to follow the show on Facebook or Twitter, the links to the show's pages on both of those networks can be found there as well. Any email or comments about the show can be sent to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com, and feedback is always welcomed and appreciated. Please remember the Superman homepage and the Superman Podcast Network, two excellent sites for all kinds of Superman awesomeness uh, once you're done listening to this show. And, Michael, while you're here, I also want to thank you for hosting the Superman Podcast Network. Cause oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Uh, Billy Hogan suggested it. Uh, I put it into action, but you guys make it work. So I think it's brought a, a lot more attention to all the shows that are part of it. So it's and Plus, it's nice to have one kind of hub for the, for the network. But. Yeah, it, 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 somebody's done that for Batman, too, yes. um, which, which is kind of funny because Kaiser and I discussed that recently <laughs> uh, in the past that usually Batman people don't like to team up whereas Superman people do, which I think speaks to the fans of those characters more than any, anything else that can be talked about them. Yes, but that is the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find mm-hmm. at batmanpodcastconnection.blogspot.com, I think. Uh, I think it's WordPress. WordPress.com. I'll link to it in the show notes, either way. Uh, but you can also find me, along with J. David Weeder and Jeffrey Taylor, monthly on Green Lantern's Light at greenlanternslight.com. And we just actually turned the corner into a new era of Green Lantern with the most recent episode, so check it out. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Michael, thank you again. Uh, it was my pleasure, sir. And to the rest of you, thanks again for listening to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and we'll talk to you later. Goodbye.
Woohoo! Right. Good, I can finally do that. <laughs> I've been thirsting all throughout the synopsis. <laughs> okay. Sorry. It's okay, I just had the commissars in town stuck in my head for some reason. Um, <laughs> Once you get past Carol Ferris having a male side to herself, you know, Engelhart's run really sings. Yeah, I I mentioned it in the most recent episode that I had been pretty hard on the issues we'd covered to that point, you know, the hardest of the three of us, but I really dug uh, 201, 202, and 203. Um, just, they were just really fun, and I liked the Chip story, even though Jeffrey hated it, of course. But. Yeah, Jeffrey can shut up because Chip's my favorite <laughs> alien Green Lantern ever. I'm not kidding about that either. <laughs>